You are listening to the Landmark Sermon Series, a sermon podcast nearly 40 years in the making. You'll hear the voices of our church's founding pastors, Dr. James Reeves and Alan McBrayer, as well as others who helped pave the way for City on a Hill beginning all the way back in the early 1980s. Our hope is that these sermons bless you and challenge you in the same way they have blessed and challenged so many others in the past. For more information about our church, visit www.cityonahilldfw.com. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. This is not a real pretty passage of Scripture tonight to be studying, and I'm going to kind of just talk through it with you. It's not one of the most beautiful examples of a church that we have in the book of Revelation. You know, there are seven of them that we're studying, and the church in Thyatira, I've entitled this Thyatira, the Compromising Church. And because of that, some of the things that the Lord Jesus says to this church are not real pretty. They're not really encouraging, but they're really more words of judgment. But sometimes those are things that we need to hear. And so we're going to study this church tonight, the church in Thyra Tyra. In a few moments, we're going we're gonna to read chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. Now, Thyra Tyra is a fork in the study of the seven churches that we've been going through in the book of Revelation. This is a church that is characterized by compromise. It was a literal church that was in literal existence in A.D. 95, about the time that this letter was written, but also... Thyatira represents for us the fourth stage in church history. You remember we've said that the seven churches in the book of Revelation represent seven stages in the history of the Christian church from the day of Pentecost until the Lord Jesus comes back. And this church represents for us the fourth stage in church history, that period from about 600 A.D. to about 1500 A.D. that is commonly known to us as the Dark Ages. That was the period of time we talked about a little bit last week, about 600 A.D., when Constantine became the ruler over the Roman Empire. Now, when Constantine began to rule, he decided that he was going to be a Christian. And so he proclaimed himself a Christian, proclaimed all of his soldiers to be Christians, and proclaimed Christianity to be the state religion. So within a matter of just a few years, when it had been totally unpopular to be a Christian, as a matter of fact, many Christians were being put to death, within a matter of just a few years and changing of rulers, then all of a sudden Christianity was proclaimed as the state religion. And folks, it wasn't very long after that that Christianity started going right downhill. And it went right into the period known as the Dark Ages. And during that period of time, true Christianity almost literally died. The church became so entwined with the world that there was almost nothing left of the truth of Jesus Christ. But thank the Lord that there was a small remnant of people, and there always have been that small remnant of people throughout the history of the church that have remained true to the Lord Jesus. Now this church had fallen victim to an old dictum. It's been with us for a long time, and it's with us even in our day and time. It's an old lie that's been fostered by the evil one himself that says we as the church of Jesus Christ, we as God's people, need to be broad-minded. We need to be fair with everybody, and so we need to be broad-minded. You know what a a synonym of broad-mindedness is? Empty-headedness. When somebody gets totally broad-minded, they usually get so broad that they don't have any depth whatsoever. And this church had been the victim of that old lie that we need to be fair to everybody and therefore we need to be broad-minded somewhat. We need to be a little bit liberal and we need to be able to give a little bit. We need to be able to compromise a little bit in order to get along in this old world that we live in. Many in that day and time were saying man needs to be free. Many in our day and time are saying the same thing. That man needs the freedom to be able to make his own decisions. Nobody needs to be telling him that. And we don't need a central authority. Now what is the central authority for the child of God? It's the Word of God, isn't it? 
But many people in that day and time were fostering the lie that there is no need for a central authority. Each man should be left to do as he feels. Each one should be left to do as he feels is right in the situation. In our day and time, what's that called? Situational ethics. And many people in the church in Thyatira were swallowing that thing, hook, line, and sinker. And it's because of that that Jesus gives his words of condemnation. Now let's go through the scripture right quick and try to get some things out of this. First of all, I want you to notice the city to which Jesus was writing. Verse 18. It says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira. The city he was writing to was the city of Thyatira. It was located somewhere closely right in the middle between Sardis and Pergamum. Now today this city has about 25,000 people living in it. In that day and time, the reason that this city was built is interesting. It was built as a bumper city. You know what a bumper city is militarily? Pergamum was the capital of Asia Minor at that day and time. And so they built this little city called Thyatira right in between Sardis and Pergamum so that if anybody was going to march against the capital city, which was Pergamum, they'd have to go through Thyatira first. So you guess what always happened to Thyatira? Throughout the history of this city, it was constantly getting burned down and then built back up. And the reason they did that is so that if an army was going to march against the capital, they'd have to go through Thyatira. And while they were beating the Thyatirans' heads out, then the people at Pergamon would be able, all the soldiers would be able to get ready, and they'd be able to fortify the city. And then that way, the capital city was protected. And so Thyatira was originally rent, built as a, um, a bumper city. It was a prosperous city. Their main commerce was in purple dye. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on. This stuff was very expensive. It came from two sources. It came from the root of a tree, and it came from the throat of a fish. Now, you can see why it would be very expensive to, to mine this kind of stuff. I, some kind of shellfish, and they'd get that little beggar out, and they'd break his shell open, and then I guess they'd dig down in his throat somewhere, and there was some kind of mineral or something that was in that fish's throat that they could make this purple dye out of. It was very difficult to get a hold of it, so it cost an awful lot on the open market. Therefore, Thyatira became a very prosperous city because they made a lot of bucks. Religiously, it was average. It was run-of-the-mill. There wasn't anything really outstanding religiously about the city as there was other cities. They had your basic temples to your basic idol gods. You remember this one we studied last week, the church at Satan's throne. They had the, the uh, temple there to Asclepius, the god of medicine. And it was a center for religious worship. Thyatira was just an average run-of-the-mill city as far as religion goes. They had all their basic gods that the Greeks and the Romans worshipped in that day and time, but nothing really to make them stand out. One thing that is interesting about this city, though, that I hope you're taking notes on this stuff. I'm talking pretty fast, aren't I? Even faster than normal? <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to try to get through it, but I want you to grasp it. One thing that's interesting about this city is, though, it was a center for guilds, labor guilds. And those, I guess, were the forerunners of our modern-day labor unions. We're going to talk about that a little bit more as we get into it because it seems like these guilds were part of the problem of what was going on in the city of Thyatira. So that's the city, a little bit of background. Now let's go to the church. We don't know really how this church ever got founded. There's no record given us in Scripture about how the church in Thyatira got started. But Acts, the 16th chapter, gives us a hint of how this may have happened. Do you remember in Acts, the 16th chapter, there's a lady that is mentioned whose name is Lydia. Lydia was from Thyatira. As a matter of fact, she was probably a member of one of the guilds, maybe. But she was a businesswoman, and her business, the scripture says, was selling purple. Purple cloth that had been dyed with this purple dye that they got out of Thyatira. Evidently, this woman, Lydia, this businesswoman, was on a business trip, and she had gone to the city of Philippi. And while she was in Philippi, she stumbled across a pretty fair country preacher by the name of Paul, the Apostle Paul. 
And I guess Paul was preaching in the synagogue there, or he's preaching on the street corner, and Lydia there was peddling her wares on the streets of Philippi, and she heard the gospel message for the first time. The scripture tells us in Acts 16 that Lydia got saved. She met Jesus personally that day. And not only her, but many people in her family also accepted the Lord. So I can surmise, and it probably sounds pretty reasonable, that this woman, Lydia, went back to her home in Thyatira, began to share this new Jesus that she had found. And obviously, when she quit worshiping all the pagan gods, everybody was going to ask her, well, what happened to Lydia? Has she become an atheist? And so she had the opportunity, probably, to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus. I imagine she started a church right there in her home and started preaching out of her home, her and her husband and her family. And other people got saved. And this church probably started through the ministry of this woman, Lydia, and her family. But we find by 95 AD, when this letter was written to this church, that this church had gone so far downhill that they were totally steeped in compromise in the world. And for that reason, Jesus condemns them. Now let's go to verse 18 and look at the correspondent. The correspondent is Jesus himself. Verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says these things. Now you'll remember that I've said to you that the way that our Lord introduces himself to each one of the churches is very, very important. He introduced himself to the church in Ephesus as the one who is walking among the lampstands, you'll remember. And the lampstands, the, 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 the gospel tells us, represent the churches. And so Jesus says to that church left its first love, who was actively doing the works of God, but had left its first love for God. Jesus reminded them, now I'm in your midst, and I know what's going on. I know your hearts. Now Jesus introduced himself each time to these churches in a very particular way for a very specific purpose. And this church, particularly, he introduces himself, first of all, as the Son of God. Now, write this down. Whenever the, the, the term Son of God is applied to Jesus in the Scripture, it is always there to emphasize his deity. It is always given to emphasize the fact that Jesus was, in fact, God himself. Now, you remember back in the first chapter where Jesus was speaking to the church in Ephesus, he introduced himself to the church of Ephesus like this. He called himself the Son of Man. Anytime in the scriptures where the Son of Man is applied to Jesus, that title, it emphasizes his humanity. Now, it's interesting here that Jesus writes to this church that is embroiled in compromise in the world. He writes to this church that represents that time in history from 600 A.D. to about 1500 A.D. when Jesus' deity was being downplayed. During that time in the history of the Christian church, the deity of Jesus was not an important factor in the church. They didn't talk about that much. As a matter of fact, that was being downplayed, and worship of Mary and worship of saints and worship of angels and all of those things that is totally and completely foreign to the Word of God were being elevated. The worship of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus was being downplayed, and the worship and elevation of others was being uplifted. And it's interesting to me that Jesus opens this letter to this church in compromise and reminds them of who he is. He says, the Son of God, emphasizing the deity of Jesus, is the one that says this to you. Now then, let's go on. This Son of God, he says, has eyes like a flame of fire. Why does he say that? Well, what is the characteristic of fire? It penetrates, doesn't it? Fire penetrates everything that it touches. And so Jesus is saying here, the Word of God is saying here, that he who is the Son of God has eyes like a flame of fire. He penetrates. He sees deep into the heart of mankind. He sees everything and nothing escapes his notice. He sees right beyond our facade and right into our hearts, into our deepest motives. 
And so here's Jesus, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire that are penetrating to the heart. And then he goes on and he says, His feet are like burnished bronze. The Son of God, who has eyes as flame of fire, has also feet as burnished bronze. Now, bronze in the Scripture, this is important in interpreting Revelation. Bronze in the Scripture is always symbolic of the judgment of God. Bronze is symbolic of God's judgment. And so Jesus is saying here, I am coming in judgment. The Son of God who has eyes like flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze is coming in judgment. Why do you think he refers to his feet? I think it may be this. Because he's painting a picture of the fact that the Son of God, Jesus, is going to come and when he comes, he is going to stamp out all those who are opposed to the will of God. He is coming in judgment upon the sin of mankind. This is a terrible picture of the coming judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus introduces himself to the compromising church as the Son of God, his deity, as the one who sees into their deepest motives, and as the one who is coming in judgment upon them. Let's go on to the commendation that Jesus gives them. Verse 19. Have you got your bionic pen out tonight? To be able to write this stuff down. Verse 19. He says, I know your deeds and your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance and that the deeds of late are greater than at first. Jesus begins by commending this church. That's interesting what he says to these, feet, these people and this church that is embroiled in the midst of compromise. I think that Jesus is writing this verse to that small remnant that he's going to talk about in a few moments. That small remnant of ones who are faithful in the midst of this church that is in the midst of compromise. And this is what he says to them. He says, I know your deeds. Evidently, this was a working church. It was an active church. It was an energetic church, just like the church in Ephesus. Man, they were out doing the work of the ministry. They weren't lazy. They weren't just sitting back. And then he says, I know your love. Now, it's interesting the word that he uses there. He uses the word agape. You ever heard that word before? It's the same word that's used in John 3, 16. It's the Greek word for God's kind of love that kind of self-sacrificing love that just gives itself and gives itself and gives itself. And he says to these people, I know you and I know your love. I know you're a loving kind of people. I know that, you don't, that you're self-sacrificing kind of people, that you don't ask anything in return. Now, there's a contrast here that I think we need to get. Do you remember the church in Ephesus? When Jesus spoke to the church in Ephesus, he was writing to a church that was characterized by strong opposition to sin. You remember that church we talked about? Man, he said, I commend you. I praise you because you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. You hate idol worshipers. You don't put up with any of this kind of garbage. As a matter of fact, if somebody comes in your midst and says that he's a prophet and he's not really a prophet, you're able to tell it. You can see right through those people. You folks don't put up with any kind of garbage. You don't put up with any, all this kind of sin that's going on. And Jesus wrote to the church in Ephesus that they were doctrinally sound, but he says, I have this one thing against you. You've let your first love. They were a bunch of Pharisees. That's what they were. They had all the doctrine right. They had all the deeds down. They condemned sin and they wouldn't put up with it in their church. But Jesus said, I have this against you. You've left your first love. And then Jesus writes to the church in Thyatira. These folks are not characterized by hatred of sin. They're characterized by love. They're a church that had a loving heart. They're a church that was a self-sacrificing church to one another. But Jesus said, this I've got against you. You tolerate sin. 
You got this kind of garbage going on right under your very nose. Yeah, you have love, but you're putting up with all kinds of sin that's going right on right around your nose. He said to Ephesus, who was doing the good deeds and who wouldn't tolerate sin, he said, you have no love. He said to Thyatira, who had all the love in the world, but they let sin go on in the church right beneath their very noses. And Jesus condemned both. He condemned both of them. He condemned both extremes. One extreme was a Pharisee, and the other extreme was a mamby kind of love that wouldn't do anything, that wouldn't discipline in any way. Folks, sometimes love will discipline. Isn't that right? And you discipline your children because you love them? Is if it's real love, if it's genuine love, ultimately there's going to be some kind of discipline that's going to be associated with it. Now, it's interesting the contrast in between those two churches. One of them had all of the hatred for sin that a church ought to have, but they didn't have any love. The other one had all the love, but they tolerated sin in their midst. And Jesus condemned both extremes. Then he goes on and he, can, he commends them for their faith. Evidently, these folks were trusting God for lives. They were walking in daily trust of the Lord for their physical needs. Then he goes on and he, and he commends them for their service. Evidently, they were out meeting the needs of their people. They weren't letting people in the midst of their church go without. If they had something, they'd be willing to give it. They were out ministering in the community and ministering among their people. They were a serving kind of church. And then he says to them, I also commend you for your perseverance. They were hanging in there. They didn't quit. They didn't give up. Watch so many of us do when you go and get stuck. Things get kind of rough. First thing we do is throw our hands up in the, in the air and, and just ruin our witness with everybody around us. But not these folks. They were a persevering kind of people. They hung in there. They had love. They had service. They had faith and all these kinds of things. And we read this. And our first response is, well, what else is there? <laughs> I mean, goodness. If they're loving people, if they're doing the deeds of the ministry, if they're serving, if they've got faith, if they've got perseverance, what else is there that a church can be doing? And Jesus said, in verse 20, I have this against you. Verse 20, the condemnation. Boy, we are covering ground, aren't we? <laughs> you with me? Good. Okay. I had to catch my breath for a minute. Verse 20, read it with me. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things that are sacrificed to idols. This church had all the deeds. They had all the love, all the faith, all the perseverance, all the service, all of those kinds of things that Jesus said are good. But he said, this one thing I have against you is that you're allowing sin to go on in the midst of your church, and you're doing nothing about it. You're just letting it happen, and you're going on about your merry way of serving me, but this kind of stuff is going on right in the middle of your church, and it's ruining the witness of the body of Jesus, and you're not doing one cotton-picking thing about it. You're letting a Jezebel live in your midst and not doing anything. You remember Jezebel in the Old Testament? Well, this one probably wasn't really named Jezebel. I can't imagine any mother naming her daughter Jezebel. After what? Jezebel had done in the Old Testament, and, and any mother in this day and time would have heard of the Jezebel of the Old Testament. So I doubt really that this woman was named Jezebel, but Jesus calls her by the name of Jezebel because she so closely paralleled the life of the Jezebel of the Old Testament. Do you remember the Old Testament Jezebel? She had the whammy on King Ahab, the king of Israel. She must have been a real looker because when Ahab saw her, he just fell head over heels in love. He went bananas over Jezebel. She had that way with men, evidently, from what the Scripture says. She had that way with all people, as a matter of fact. 
Well, when Ahab saw her, immediately his heart started throbbing, and so he said, well, I've got to have this woman as my wife. And that's exactly what he did against the, com against the commandment of God, against the wiser counsel of God's prophets. Ahab said, I want to have this woman as my wife. And so Ahab, the king of Israel, the king of God's people, married Jezebel. Now, you remember that Jezebel was an idol worshiper, like most people were that day and time, and her chief idol was the god called Baal. When she married Ahab, she brought with her into Jerusalem all of her paganism, all of her idol worship, and all of her little idols, I guess, that she had sitting around in her room and everything. And Ahab loved her so much that he just let all that kind of stuff go on. And he even endorsed it, as a matter of fact. He set up temples to the god of Baal. And the people of God, through the life of Jezebel, began to compromise with pagan gods, with paganism. And that right there was the teaching of Jezebel. The teaching of Jezebel was a teaching of compromise. Now, you remember Elijah, what he did? Elijah had an encounter with Jezebel's prophets, the prophets of Baal, the priests of Baal, up on Mount Carmel one day. And Elijah said, I'm sick of this. We're going to find out once and for all who is God of the universe. And I guess, I think it says there are about 500 of those prophets that were there that day, prophets of Baal who had been set up by Jezebel. And so Elijah goes up on the Mount Carmel by himself and he says, I challenge you to do And he said, we're going to find out where's God is for real. And so Elijah drew him a circle there and he put a bunch of stuff out there in the middle of that thing. And he said, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to give you first shot, as a matter of fact. You can dance, you can pray, you can sing, whatever you want to do, and call upon your God, call upon Baal to come down and burn this. And then I'll do the same with my God. And so then Elijah, he goes over and takes a seat, leans up against the tree over here in the corner, starts watching. He crosses his legs, I guess, and his arms, and he's just watching them. And the Baal prophets go to town, boy. They get after it. They're jumping up and down. The scripture says they're screaming, and they cut themselves because that was part of their worship. And they, they prayed and they did everything and the hours ticked on and the hours just went on and on and on. And finally the scripture says that Elijah couldn't take it anymore. He had to get that one last jib in and he said, Hey boy, pray a little louder. Maybe your God's taking a nap. And finally after the day had almost been completely spent, Elijah said, Get up, move out of the way. And the scripture says that Elijah, just to make it a little bit more convincing, a little bit more difficult, took a whole big old bucket of water and he just doused down everything there. And then he called out in the name of God Almighty, Jehovah God Almighty, and the scripture says that fire fell from heaven and it consumed everything that was there and all 500 of the Baal prophets. And when it was all said and done, all that was left was, was Elijah and a bunch of burnt dirt. A friend of mine in seminary preached a sermon on that passage of scripture and guess what he entitled it? Burnt dirt. But that was the Jezebel of the Old Testament. That was the Baal worship that was going on in that day and time. And the teaching of Jezebel and what Jesus is condemning here in this church, the teaching of Jezebel was the teaching of compromise. Now then, that's what this Jezebel in this church was doing. She was leading these people of God into compromise. Now this is how most scholars believe she was doing it. That's why I mentioned the labor deals a few moments ago. Most scholars think that because there were so many labor guilds that were in Thyatira, and these guilds were so strong that if you weren't a member of one of them, you probably didn't get to work. They had that kind of grip on the city and the labor in the city. And so if you were not a member of the guild, you were kind of left out in the cold and you didn't get to work. And so scholars think that maybe that's part of what was going on here. You see, it was a common practice among the guilds to have banquets. 
They were partying kind of people like a lot of groups are. They were real partiers, and the way they partied was they went into the pagan temple. They'd offer a sacrifice to the pagan god there, and then after it was all over with, they'd throw this big whoopee party, and they'd eat the sacrifice. You know, it was good meat, and, and a lot of it there, and it'd be cooked medium well, I guess. And, and they'd sit down and then have a big feast there. But that wasn't all of it. They, had, they didn't sit in chairs. They laid on beds. And they had these beds all over the temple there. And then the people that were a part of the guild that were there for the feast, you guess what next thing happened? They had a big orgy. And then after that was all over with, then they all went home and they waited until next week when the next feast was going to be held in the, in the, in the temple by, by the, uh, the, the labor guild. And these Christians were having a problem with this. Now, scholars believe that probably what this Jezebel was doing, she was saying to the people of God that were living there that it's okay. I mean, after all, you've got to be in a guild if you're going to work. And if you're going to be in a guild, then you've got to go to the feast. Now, let's be reasonable, folks. Let's be broad-minded about this thing. Let's think about this. Now, if you're going to work, you've got to be in one of the guilds. And if you're not in the guild, then you're not going to be able to eat. So we've got to be able to compromise a little bit here and get in on this thing, or all of us are going to go hungry. And so she's saying in this situation, situational ethics, in this situation, it's okay to go ahead and compromise and be a part of what's going on in the pagan temples. Listen to this. Now listen. Regardless of the situation, always regardless of the situation for the child of God, compromise is never the answer. Do I hear an amen? You're not so sure about that, huh? Or the child of God, compromise is never the answer that God has for his people. You know why? Because God takes sin very, very seriously. And for God's child to involve himself in that kind of compromise, he is opening himself up, literally, to the judgment of God in this world. Now, Jesus says that God takes sin very seriously. Let's go on to verse 21 and just see how seriously God takes it from what Jezebel was doing in that day and time. Verse 21, he says, And I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Then he said, Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into a great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Verse 21, he says, Now I gave Jezebel time to repent. There's the grace of God. Even the Jezebel in the church, Jesus said, and I gave her time to repent, but she didn't want to. I kept calling her back by my spirit. I kept calling her back unto myself, but she refused to repent. And he says, because she had refused to repent, this is what I'm going to do. He says, she likes a bed. Obviously, she likes the bed. I'll give her a bed. I'll give her a bed of sickness. And he says, I'll cast her upon a bed of sickness. But not only that, he says, then I'm going to kill her children. Now, that's strong. Now, that's God that's saying that, folks. Now, what children is he talking about here? He's not talking about her physical children. He's talking about those in the church of the Lord Jesus that follow her teachings, her spiritual children. He says, literally, I'm going to cast her upon a bed of sickness because she's done this to my people, and then I am going to kill every single one of them who have fallen her in her teachings. Now, those are strong words, aren't they? That says to us, it says to me, how serious God is about sin. God is serious about it when his people fall into sin. He wants a pure church, and if he has to do it by taking some of us out, the Scripture says that he'll do it. He's not above it, and he's done it before, and he'll do it again. 
Now, usually when a person falls into that kind of immorality that Miss Jezebel did, they'll take care of it because usually they'll leave the church. Doesn't necessarily mean they're going to leave the kingdom, but they'll usually leave the church. You know why? Because when a person is falling into that kind of sin, if they're in the midst of a church that's preaching the gospel, they can't stand it. <laughs> they can't stand it near it. And so they'll just take themselves out of the church, and that in itself will purify God's church. But sometimes you'll come across an individual like this Jezebel who is so deceitful that she wants to live in gross immorality but wants to stay in good standing in her church. And at that time, if God has to do it, the Scripture says that he will literally, physically take them out by the means of death. Did you ever hear anything like that before in your life? Now that's how serious God is about sin going on in the midst of his church, in the midst of his body. If you have a problem with that, you might jot this down and look it up later. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 30 and 32, Paul says to that church in Corinth there, he says, some of you are abusing the Lord's Supper. God is angry about that. And he says, some of you are abusing the Lord's Supper. And he says, because of that, because you are doing that, he says, some of you have fallen sick. And some of you have fallen asleep. And that fallen asleep in the original language, it means so, you have died. Why did they die? And why did they get sick? He says, because they were abusing something that God had given to his people. They were abusing the Lord's Supper. And Paul said, because of that, or that reason, some of you have fallen sick and are on the, on the beds of sickness, and others of you have even died because of it. You remember in the book of Acts? Oh, Ananias and Sapphira. They came and lied to God, the prophet said. Peter said, you haven't lied to man, but you've lied to God. And right there on the spot, they dropped dead because God couldn't put up with anything in his infant church that was beginning to grow. The church was just getting started and there was no way under heaven that God was going to put up with that kind of stuff in his church because it would have polluted the entire church. Now, look what I'm saying and what Jesus is saying to this church is that God takes sin among his people very, very seriously. And if any child of God makes the decision to live in gross immorality against the will of God, but tries to stay in fellowship with the church, he falls in danger of being taken out of this place because God is going to purify his church one way or the other. Now that's why oftentimes in the Old Testament, when the children of Israel went into a land, many people have had a problem with this. But that's why God said in the Old Testament, when they went in to take control of the land, when they were getting ready to take Canaan, the land that God had promised them, God said, kill everyone, man, woman, little child, and don't take one bit of booty. Don't take one idol of gold. Don't take anything. Don't touch it. Just destroy it. You know why? Because God was concerned about the purity of his people. And because it was going to be through those people that God was going to bring the Messiah, the Savior of mankind. God said to this church, you have Jezebel living in your midst, and this is what I'm going to do. Because I've given her time to repent, but she refused. God takes sin seriously in his church. Christian, if you're living in that kind of sin, you might be able to hide it from me and from everybody else, but you don't hide it from the Father. And God is interested in keeping his church pure. And you fall into the possibility. I don't think that God does it often, but I think that sometimes he does. And I know of many stories of times he has that he's taken somebody out 
in order to keep the church pure and not allow that cancer to infect the church. Notice next the counsel that Jesus gives the church. And this is it. We'll close with this. Notice the counsel that Jesus gives to his church. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what I have, hold fast until I come. And he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I have also received authority from my Father, and I give it to him, the morning star. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus gives his counsel to the churches. He says to the rest, to the remnant, to the faithful ones in the midst of this church, the ones who are not compromising. He says to you, if you'll hang in there, just hold on because I am coming. Hold on, don't compromise, don't turn, but hold on to the faith until I come. And he says, if you do that, to those who are faithful, to those who are God's people, he makes two promises. First of all, he promises them that they will rule over the nations. Verse 26. And he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. I believe that what Jesus is talking about there is the same thing that he says in verse 21 of the third chapter. In that verse he says, He who overcomes, I ran him to sit down with me on my throne as I also and sat down with my father on his throne. The same thing that he says over in Revelation chapter 20 verse 4. He says, and I saw thrones, this is John seeing a vision, and they sat upon them, the they are the, is the church, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast on his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, what Jesus is saying here to those overcomers, I will grant to him to reign with me. He is looking toward that day after the church has been raptured out of this place and Jesus has set up his thousand-year reign on this earth before the coming of the last judgment, that there you who are overcomers will have the privilege of reigning with me over this earth. He promises to the overcomers that they'll rule with him. And listen, promise, the greatest of all, verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. When I researched this and found out what the morning star was, it literally blew my doors off. Do you know what Jesus is called in chapter 22, verse 16? The bright and morning star. And what Jesus is saying here to these overcomers, the ones who hold on, he says, if you stand firm, if you don't turn, I will give myself to you, the morning star, for eternity. I am his, and he is mine. You know why there are not going to be any pagans in heaven? You know why there aren't going to be any non-believers in heaven? Because they couldn't stand the presence of Jesus for an eternity. And you know what I think? What I think may be a reward for the child of God in heaven for the way you live your life on this earth. I believe that heaven is going to be more beautiful for that sight of God that loved the Lord Jesus with all his or her heart while they lived on earth. 
because they loved him with everything they had. And so to be in his presence is the greatest thing. And for the nominal Christian that just kind of lived a nominal Christian life, to be in the presence of Jesus is not going to be that great, is it? It'll be heaven, but it won't be near the level of reward of heaven for that sight of God who loved Jesus with all their heart and longed for the coming of Jesus. Jesus said, to him who overcomes, I will give the morning star. You know why heaven is going to be so sweet for the believer? Because it's going to be an eternity in the presence of Jesus. I am his, and he is mine. God takes sin in his church seriously. Bow your heads quickly. In a moment, we're going to stand and sing hymn 355, Have Thine Own Way. And as we do that, there may be someone here tonight who has never trusted Jesus as Savior. If you died tonight, you know for sure that you'd go to hell. You don't know for sure that you'd go to heaven. You're going to have the opportunity tonight to receive Jesus, the morning star, that he might be yours for an eternity. You're going to have that opportunity tonight. If you would be willing to say yes to the Spirit of God as he has spoken, I'm going to be here at the front to talk with you, to pray with you. And if you want to come and ask a question, say, come and say, Pastor, I don't know for sure that I have eternal life, but I want to know that for sure. Then you come and I'll pray with you and I'll show you how you can know that. And maybe as a child of God, you've been living in compromise with the world. It may not be anything great big, but in your heart, the Spirit of God has told you that it's not His will for you, that tonight you need to come. Maybe the Lord's been dealing with you in this area of church membership and you've been saying no. You've been saying, no, Lord, I'm just going to float around. And you've been living out of the will of God because it's the Lord's will that you find a body of believers and you commit yourself there to serving. It's the Lord's will that you do that. And you've been saying no to the Lord. And tonight he's spoken to you and he said, this is where I want you. This is where I want you to serve in this place with these people. Then you need to come and say yes to the Spirit of God in that area. I'm going to pray that we're going to stand and sing. And as we stand and sing, don't you hide behind the hymn book. But if the Spirit of God moves you and speaks to you, then you respond. Father, we thank you for this night, for this time together. We pray now as we have this time of invitation, Lord, that your will is going to be done in each and every one of our hearts and lives. And so we give you the praise and the honor and the glory in advance for that. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Stand with us. Hymn number 355, Have Thine Own Way.